The text for this afternoon's sermon comes from James 3, the verses 13 through 18. And because we've read them already once, we will not read them again, but do please keep your Bibles open as we will work through those verses. After the sermon, we'll sing from Psalm 37, stanzas 12, 15, and 16. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we love being right. Isn't it just great to be right? Whether it's an argument with our spouse or with one of our colleagues or a debate with a professor or a dispute about politics, we all just love being right. And if we can, without being too blatantly rude, we like to flaunt our rightness. It's what any kid says, see, I told you so. And it's what we as adults communicate all the time, even if we're more subtle than that. And oftentimes we like politicians too, who say it like it is, who are aggressive, and we don't mind too much if their language comes across offensively to those who are in the wrong. Sometimes this attitude of we're right and you're wrong, that can even sometimes be characteristic of a church if we want to make sure that everyone else knows how right we are and how wrong others are about theology or music or evangelism or whatever it is. And if we're honest about it, we have to admit, we often care more about showing others how right we are than actually persuading them to see the truth and to live it themselves. Test yourself on this. Which scenario sounds better? One in which you persuade someone else that they were wrong and force them to change their mind, or one in which someone else proves you wrong and forces you to change your mind. In both cases, someone comes to the knowledge of the truth. Both should be cause for rejoicing. But I think most of us would prefer the first situation. Now, there are probably a number of reasons why we like to be right so much, but at least one of those reasons is that it inflates our ego, It makes us feel better about ourselves. If we're right and other people are wrong, well, then we must be smarter or wiser, more perceptive than others. In the verses of our text, James addresses this desire to be right and to show off our wisdom and our knowledge. So he says already in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Not exactly the seminary's favorite Bible verse. I don't think they'll put that on the website. But he says this not because teaching isn't a noble thing to do. Paul says elsewhere it's a very noble desire. But because the desire to teach others can easily follow from the assumption that I'm a very wise and knowledgeable person. It's that same pride and self-righteousness And James is especially addressing a tendency in his day, which is equally true in ours, for those people who think that they are wise and understanding to have a habit of criticizing others. It happens so easily. If we allow ourselves to believe that we are right and others are wrong, that we divide into different factions, and each of these factions criticize one another. We think highly of ourselves for aligning with the right political party or group of church theologians or whatever it is. And if we let this run its course, we quickly assume the role of judges and 
teachers. So James says, Let not many of you become teachers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's essentially repeating what the Lord Jesus himself taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Judge not, lest you be judged. For by the measure you judge others, you will be judged. Then in the rest of verses 1 through 12, he gives us some good reasons to reconsider whether we really are all that wise in understanding. He asks, how have you, who, who think you've, you're so wise, how have you been doing in controlling your tongue? Mankind has tamed every species of animal on the planet, and yet we can't seem to control our own tongue. Nobody has a perfect record there. He says in verse 2, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. So to get to his point, if that's how well we're doing with our tongue, well then perhaps we should reevaluate whether we are all that wise and understanding. So now he's laid the whole issue on the table, and then in verse 13, he asks his readers directly, in verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? And he's not asking for a show of hands. He gives instead a simple exhortation. If you are wise, let him show it. Let him show by his good conduct his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he says, if you are truly wise, then you should have a beautiful and attractive and winsome way of life to accompany that. So let people see that instead of just hearing about your wisdom. You, are, you might remember that the Lord Jesus called us to the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth and lights on a hill, so let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You see, it really is good to be wise. We're called to be wise. But the primary means of expressing that wisdom and convincing others of that wisdom is with our lifestyle and not just with our words. When we are wise in that way, then it gives God the glory and it draws people to him. By a winsome life, we may make the truth beautiful. The Bible elsewhere speaks of adorning the gospel with our lifestyle. That's true wisdom. A lifestyle that is beautiful to God and man that even unbelievers can appreciate and respect. And the second part of this exhortation in verse 13 is also beautiful and surprisingly obvious when you think about it. He says, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. The truly wise are not those who are aggressively insisting on their own opinions or who, who can make all manner of complex arguments, but those who are humble, whose deeds are just, whose lives and whose attitude towards others are gentle and sympathetic. And when we think about it, of course, of course, that's what wisdom looks like. But then why don't we see that more often? Is this characteristic of our attitude towards others? You see, this simple command is actually very convicting, isn't it? A winsome lifestyle, gentle words, good deeds, it's so obvious when you think about it that this is what wisdom is really about. But many of us, when we read this, we recognize very quickly that we fall far short of that standard. This simple exhortation quickly reveals the true character of our wisdom. 
And we can notice that by getting at the matter this way, James actually models the very kind of gentleness that he encourages us to practice. Notice he doesn't accuse anyone here. He doesn't say, you're not as wise as you think you are. He only says, let him who is wise and understanding show it by his good works, by his attractive lifestyle. But his point is so obvious and so self-evident that it's immediately convicting. We realize, yes, he's right. That is true wisdom. And then he doesn't need to convince us any further. We realize we have some work to do. And that prepares us for where he goes next in verse 14. He knows that we're not going to measure up perfectly to that standard and that there are other things going on in our hearts. But again, he doesn't accuse anyone. He just lets that see it for lets us see it for ourselves. And then he says in verse 14, "If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth." So he lets the Holy Spirit do the work of convicting those who need to be convicted. But if we do recognize that we're among them, and we should, that our lives are not exactly what he described in verse 13, then we should also recognize that there may be jealousy and selfish ambition in our hearts. If that's the case, he says, don't allow yourself to be fooled. The phrase, do not boast, it seems to be referring to that same attitude of, I'm right and others are wrong. So James is saying, if your walk of life isn't characterized by that humility, by that winsome lifestyle of verse 13, then don't allow yourself to become puffed up and to believe that you are wise, no matter how tempting it might be for whatever other reasons you might have. If there's jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, then don't believe the the lie that you are truly wise, because it's not the truth. And he says that explicitly in verse 15. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This bitter jealousy, this selfish ambition, you could also translate that rivalry, that's not true wisdom. Now, we don't know whether James was thinking specifically of a certain group of people in the church, but he was a pastor for a long time, and he was certainly familiar with these kinds of conflicts in the church. Church conflicts can so often be motivated at heart by that jealousy and that selfish ambition or rivalry. Too often, that is actually what's going on. No matter how piously zealous for a good cause we might want people to think we are, it's very easy to deceive ourselves here, and James warns us against that. He says that is not true wisdom. Instead, James describes the true character of this attitude, which is motivated by jealousy. He says it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. We can notice a kind of ascending order there in opposition to God. This attitude is earthly, meaning it doesn't come from a regenerated heart, but instead from our corrupt natures. It's unspiritual, meaning that it's properly something that belongs to animals, that doesn't belong to spiritual beings. And it's demonic because it's rooted in that same pride and that same selfish ambition by which the demons themselves live, that same attacking one another and self-serving way that they live. So James warns those who recognize that reality in themselves, he warns them that it is not going to lead somewhere that is good. Verse 16, 
where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Those who give in to that selfishness, that envy, that rivalry, they will ultimately find themselves in that kind of chaos, and it's not pretty. It's the kind of thing that leads to church breakdowns and splits and family breakdowns. Whenever jealousy and rivalry find a place in the hearts of church leaders or family leaders or even church members, you can be sure that they will produce in the long run all manner of vile consequences. After our passage in in James 4, he works in detail on this point. He asks already in 4 verse 1, what is it that causes quarrels and fights among you? And he answers that question. He points back to that same source, that jealousy, that envy, that coveting. So if we care at all about our church or our family or as far as, as, far as politics are concerned, our country, if we care about them, we do not want to go down that road. Sinful motives at the root level, the heart, will naturally lead to all kinds of sin and disorder on the fruit level, the actions the words, the bitterness, the family feuds, the disorder and chaos that all spring from that same jealousy and rivalry in the heart. That false wisdom might fool some people into believing that they are truly wise, but James is clear here. He says that is not the wisdom from above. In verse 17, then, he describes what true wisdom looks like. And there he's essentially elaborating on what he said in verse 13. And notice again in in these verses, James is practicing exactly what he's preaching here. He doesn't dwell too long on the point. He doesn't make any specific condemnations. He only gives us enough so that we would recognize the ugliness of this kind of jealousy and envy that we might be harboring in our own hearts and that we would desire something better. He then moves on in verse 17 to show his readers what true wisdom looks like so that they can strive after that instead. And he's not trying to condemn anyone, but to persuade us to desire and to practice true wisdom. So what does true wisdom look like? Well, first, in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure. It's important to notice that short phrase first or first of all or in the first place purity or blamelessness it's set apart from all the other qualities because if we're not pure it doesn't really matter what we are purity or or rather impurity or wickedness plus any other quality creates hypocrisy a kind person who's living in sin is a hypocrite and will gain nothing from his or her kindness A smart person will gain nothing from his or her intelligence. Wisdom makes it its first priority to remove every hint of impurity. Wisdom recognizes that our primary battle, as we saw this morning, is against sin and our own sin in the first place. Now, there is not one of us who is truly blameless or pure, and we cannot do this by our own strength. But our purity is not rooted in ourselves. It is absolutely essential that we understand this. Our purity is rooted in Christ, because in Christ we are pure and blameless in God's eyes. Christ has taken the blame for us. We need to understand this because this is precisely what sets those who are truly wise 
apart from those who live by this false wisdom. Those who do not have the guilt of sin taken away, well, they will continue to be motivated by envy, by jealousy, by whatever it takes to persuade themselves that they are okay, that they are truly wise. They will do everything they can to deceive themselves. But those who have true wisdom are those who actually are blameless. And because they're blameless in God's eyes, they may actually begin to live as blameless in reality. The knowledge that Christ has taken their blame and that they're innocent in God's eyes and working from a clean slate, so to speak, that is the peace that enables them, through the Holy Spirit, to begin actually living blameless lives, to begin actually putting sin to death. And that is why blamelessness or purity must always be a matter of first things for the truly wise. Being made pure in Christ, then true wisdom seeks to live that reality out. It seeks to live such a life that no one could accuse, and that if they do, they would be corrected even by their own peers. True wisdom seeks to live above blame. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, Live such good lives among the pagans that although, recognizing that this will happen, although they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. True wisdom recognizes other sinners will accuse because they hate the name that we bear. But true wisdom lives such a life that it would be obvious to anyone who does accuse us that there is no substance at all to those accusations. We know that, that people will accuse, but even unregenerate sinners do have some recognition of when things have gone too far. They have a tolerance level too because they're made in the image of God. The wise recognize then that even the smallest hint of blame, of blame or of impurity can cause us Christians to lose that credibility. And so the wise seek to live blameless in this world. That is true wisdom and it has a powerful effect on drawing sinners near. So the first concern then of wisdom must always be purity or innocence from all sin. There's no other quality that compares to that one. But as we strive for that, we recognize that there are many other qualities that should belong to the truly wise. So James lists several other qualities, beginning again in verse 17. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. You could also say peacemaking. And this is obviously the, the opposite of that jealousy and that rivalry that seeks to divide, and seeks to bring things apart. Instead of seeking to stir up division, true wisdom would rather make friends, would rather humbly persuade others to agree in the truth. When we're motivated by jealousy and rivalry, we enjoy being right and others being wrong because that inflates our ego. We puff ourselves up, as, the, as verse 14 says. But true wisdom doesn't enjoy the other person being wrong. It's like love. If you remember how love is described in 1 Corinthians 13, you remember that long list that Paul gives, love is patient, love is kind. One of those qualities is that it doesn't delight in evil or rejoice at wrongdoing. 
That's what it means to be peaceable. Love would rather have the other person agree and be right. Love would rather have the other person join us in doing the right thing. And after all, isn't that how God has treated us? So instead of aggravating and alienating the other person, true wisdom, the wisdom which comes from God, rather seeks to make peace, to build friendships, to call others to agreement. It does not seek to stir up controversies, but to bring people together. And that's exactly what James himself was so well known for in New Testament times. That's one of the reasons why he always had such an honorable reputation among the apostles and the whole church. We read Acts 15 together, and there we read how James made peace between Paul and Peter and some of the other church leaders when the church was very seriously divided over an issue about the Gentiles. It was a difficult and a tense situation with a lot of debate. Several verses tell us how much debate there was. But James listened to Peter, and then he gave wise advice to everyone there, and he made peace so that when he finished, it seemed good to the whole congregation to take his advice and do as he suggested. In Acts 21, you can read about another situation like that when Paul later visited Jerusalem, and immediately James was the first to meet him, and James told him, take certain precautions not to offend certain people. That's who James was. He was a peacemaker. And because of this, he had a very honorable reputation, not just in the church, but even among the Jews. His nickname among the Jews was James the Just. And no doubt that reputation did much good in bringing others to Christ, or at least in softening the anger of others against Christians. That's also why James could write an entire letter like he does here, full of exhortations and commands. James has by far the most commands of any book in the entire Bible, per page, that is. James had so much respect that he could do that. People knew him. People respected him. They recognized that when he spoke, they should listen. That is the way of a peacemaker. And that's also what we read so many times over in the book of Proverbs. Remember that in New Testament times, the only scripture they had was the Old Testament. And James had a reputation as a very wise man, very learned in scriptures. So certainly he knew Proverbs very well and probably had it memorized. And that point of peacemaking is so obvious from Proverbs. It comes back so many times over. Just in chapter 15, which we read together, there are so many verses on that point. 15 verse 1, a gentle anger turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Verse 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. What a metaphor, a tree of life for the soothing tongue. But perversion crushes the spirit. Or verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms the dispute. Verse 28, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. Think again of what James has just said about the tongue. And isn't that exactly what the Lord Jesus also commanded on the Sermon on the Mount? So many times over, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Or later, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. That's the attitude of the regenerate person. He doesn't desire to alienate his opponents or make them look stupid, but desires that they come to a knowledge of the truth, just as we have. 
so the wisdom from above is peaceable, then it is also gentle and open to reason. The point was already made in verse 13 where he said he exhorted the wise to show their good conduct in the meekness or gentleness of wisdom. And it's a point worth dwelling on. When we get into an argument with our spouse or with our kids or whether it's a political argument, how quickly don't we become unreasonable? When we could concede a point that's being made and we choose not to, then it's no longer I care about you and want to help you understand, but it becomes simply I'm right and I don't want to hear it anymore. James says true wisdom is gentle and open to reason. With our spouse and with our loved ones, and in church disputes too, we should always strive to be open to reason. Paul says in Philippians 4, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The wise are not stubborn or inflexible or pig-headed, but they're gentle, they're open to reason. We should always seek to understand the other person. If correction is needed, we should correct gently Paul says in Ephesians 4 that we should speak the truth in love. It seems that so many Christians, so often ourselves too, we only know how to do one or the other, speak the truth or be loving, but we're called to do both. Now the word for reasonable or open to reason here can also mean submissive or deferential. And this doesn't mean that the wise person submits to whatever arguments are being thrown at him or her. James has already said in chapter 1 that we shouldn't be blown and tossed by the waves and wind of every doctrine. But it does mean that we should seek to submit to each other in whatever way we can. Why not go the extra mile in order to win a brother or sister? Another word still to translate this would be deferential, meaning you don't consider yourself better than the other person or superior to them, but rather the other way around. It's what Paul says in Romans 12, consider others better than yourselves. And there's a dimension here of open-mindedness, and not in the sense that your mind is so open that your brains fall out, but that we listen and that we're teachable, that we want to learn from each other. It's the other side to the coin of being open to reason, that if someone has a valid point, we acknowledge it, we grant that. If there's something we can learn, we learn it, we admit that. If we're teachable, then whether we win or lose an argument, either way, we still win. Either we can convince someone else or we ourselves are convinced. Next, James says that wisdom is full of mercy and good fruits. Mercy obviously means that the wise person isn't interested in gloating at his beaten opponents the way that people do when they're motivated by jealousy and rivalry. If the wise person succeeds in persuading someone of the truth, he or she doesn't rub it in or make the other person look or feel dumb, but is merciful, recognizing that we too have been wrong so many times, that we too were sinners in rebellion against God. We needed God to correct us. And we recognize that if we have anything at all to offer others, it's only because God has given it to us. Good fruit that gets at what is already said in verse 13, that our lives match our words. Finally, James ends with two more words. And these these words actually sound similar in the Greek, probably to help make the list memorable. The first is impartial. The point is that it is objective, and it isn't swayed by loyalty to one party or another, 
Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative, or followers of one theologian versus followers of another, of the farmers versus the businessmen. No, wisdom doesn't take sides. Obviously, wisdom has its convictions, but it is not unfairly for or against any party, but judges all things by the truth of God's word and recognizes that we will all stand together before the Father on an evil, even level footing. Finally, James says that wisdom is sincere or literally unhypocritical. Wisdom doesn't say one thing and then do another, and wisdom doesn't say one thing and then mean something else. James then finishes this exhortation in verse 18 with what sounds like it may have been a proverb of his time. And with this proverb, he gets at the heart of what our attitude really should be about as we learn and practice this wisdom. The wisdom from above desires righteousness, a harvest of righteousness. It's not like jealousy and rivalry that desires to glorify oneself and results in disorder and all kinds of evil. Such people, they might claim that if you only listened, then you would see a harvest of righteousness, that the world would be a better place. But James says that this, that kind of jealousy can never produce true righteousness. True righteousness can only be sown in the soil of peace. Offensive attacks on our opponents or heavy slam-dunk arguments, they might look impressive, but they won't win any converts. They will do little good without love. Arrogance will never persuade those who disagree with us about the truth, and they will do no good to bring people to the knowledge of God. To do that, we need godly wisdom, and that wisdom will be humble and will desire peace. That is the attitude which actually leads people to the knowledge of the truth and to righteous lives. So that's what this proverb gets at in verse 18. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Notice the way he phrases it. It's sown in peace by those who make peace. And the point is this. There's only one way to get a harvest of righteousness. And that is what we're called to do, whether it's in the way we raise our children, the way we encourage our spouses or serve in our communities. We're looking for a harvest of righteousness to God. If we're arrogant then and self-serving, we will only drag the name of God through the mud. But if we are peaceful, if we sow the word of God in a peaceful manner, And in a humble way, then, James says, we will see a harvest of righteousness. So may the Holy Spirit work that into our hearts, that we would desire the same righteousness that God our Father desired of us, and that we would seek that in the same way that he sought it uh, of us, in a way that is merciful, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, and humble. May our God shape us more and more into his image the image of the most wise God and our most humble Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us respond by singing from Psalm 37, the stanzas 12, 15, and 16.